Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. This is Gretchen Gagel with Continuum Advisory Group. I'm so thrilled today to have our co-sponsor, CII, Stephen Mulva, Executive Director of CII, joining me to interview John Daly, who is a professor at the University of Texas. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Gretchen. Glad to be here. And I'm excited to be with both of you. Yeah. So, John, you have a multitude of different topics that you research and work with your clients and teach about at the University of Texas. But today we're here to talk specifically about advocacy and influence. How did you get interested in in the topic of advocacy? Gretchen, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of different companies over my lifetime. And I oftentimes spend time just asking people what's going on in their lives, what's going on in the company. And I had this experience, must have been 10, 12 years ago now. I'm sitting in a company in San Jose. And a person says, it's not fair. I said, well, it's not fair. I have more patents than he does, but he keeps getting the funding. Then I'm in a company in Massachusetts about a week later, and somebody says virtually the same thing. It's not fair. I said, "What? why are you saying that? He says, because she used to work for me. Now she's my boss. And it occurred to me both these people had two things in common. One, they're extraordinarily smart people. But number two, they weren't getting credit for their ideas. They weren't getting their ideas adopted. So I got very interested in, if you will, the politics of ideas. What does it take to successfully sell an idea within an organization? And when I started doing this research, I discovered all sorts of historical examples of people with good ideas that go nowhere. And companies lose those people, and they also miss out on huge opportunities to grow their business in the future. So when I started talking to people about it, people said that's an important issue. And a lot of TEPCO people, engineers of any sort, don't really get the idea that a good idea doesn't sell itself. You have to not only have a good idea, but you also got to be able to market or sell that idea within your organization to be successful. Right. So I focus on some passion of mine, help these people get more successful, having the impact they deserve to have. Great. And Stephen, I first heard John speak at the Construction Industry Institute conference this year. Obviously, there was a reason that you felt this topic was important to our industry. Right. Yeah, we, uh, we've we had John be an instructor in our executive leader program uh, here at the University of Texas uh, for many years. Uh, what we've been focused on at CII is talking about the people, the process, the technology, and, and the business model. And largely in construction, we focus on the process. Historically, when something doesn't go well, we must re-engineer the process. Uh, but we tend to not focus very much on the people, and it's really the people that are at the heart of, of what we do. And so uh, for the last three years, we've, we've kicked off every one of our conference with, with somebody who can speak directly to uh, the people in terms of what their role is in, in being successful. And I thought uh, John did an amazing job uh, at our conference at Indianapolis this last summer, uh, really talking talking about that. 
But that probably also brings up um, another question, which is, you know, as engineers, this is sort of the head versus heart kind of thing. You know, we, we approach every problem thinking a thinking person's perspective. And, you know, how much does the heart play into this, especially in a technical field? Yeah. I think the research says people decide emotionally and justify logically. Uh, any design, it seems to me, is both an emotional as well as a cognitive thing. Uh, you can design anything in a lot of different ways. So just the feel of a design, for example, does it feel right? Is a really important thing. A uh, good example was, for example, Boeing versus Lockheed on the F-35 fighter. Uh, one reason Boeing got the, but one reason Lockheed got the deal was Boeing's plane just did not look like a plane in a traditional sense. It didn't have a pointy nose. Mm. Now they may have had a better design, but in fact, what happened was the look mattered. Also, they decided to use Lockheed mostly because if Lockheed hadn't got the business, Lockheed might go out of business. It was the political dimension wow. that if, we, if Boeing had all the business, what would Lockheed do at this point? And so the Department of Defense said, we want to have a balanced vendor pool. So both of those are not empirically engineering reasons for a decision, but they're political and even gut feelings. And I think that happens in any technical field. Some of the science is important, some of the technology is important, but it's also how do you deal with the community? How do you deal with the people working for you? I mean, work today is mostly voluntary, it seems to me. I know how little you can do, but I can't measure how much you can do. And so it's up to the manager to essentially sell their ideas inside as well. I can have somebody check things three times or five times, technically, and it's really up to them. And so as a manager, you got to persuade not only outside your unit, but people inside your unit to good work as well. And so I think, I think even in technical fields, it becomes more and more important. Universities have huge labs. How you manage a lab is as important as the results you get out of the lab. And we have these massive labs where scientists get a lot of grants, do a lot of research. But the challenge is the dynamics of the people inside the lab have as much impact as any good science question has on the results. So certainly technical, don't misunderstand, technical stuff matters deeply to me. But I think technical stuff gets wrapped around and shaped by, if you will, the personal people sorts of things. So one of the things, John, that I'm, I'm kind of implying, I guess, from this is that lots of people have good ideas. It's just that they're, they're not promoted, you know, they're not acted upon. Is that the case? Yeah, I think they're not, at one point they're not acted on, but I think the first question is, does the person with a good idea get people to buy into the idea in the first place? After buying, there's a decision to adopt or not, but getting heard is one of the politics, for example, of an organization. How do you get the right decision makers to hear your idea? How do you pitch the idea in the way that makes decision makers say, yes, we've got to do this? Uh, how do you shepherd your idea after it's even approved? Uh, many times, we're doing, project, we're doing a research project now funded by an energy company um, in, in Norway, I'll leave it alone, about how do you successfully kill projects? Uh, there's a lot of research on how you build projects up, but how do you kill projects is very difficult. So one way to make sure a project ends is a scientist, somebody doesn't want to do it. <laughs> so it's not simply getting the idea sold, it's also being good shepherd of the idea afterwards. Otherwise the idea will just fade away many times. Part of it's though, being perceived as being successful, like sometimes doing your job is to stop the company from going ahead with the project Absolutely. that's going to be uneconomic. Uneconomic or even a dangerous product. I mean, a project. Uh, all the skills we teach about how to advocate, you can also use it to advocate against something. So what's an example? 
Most of the time, people think it's a binary decision. You either for something or against something. Research tells us if you want to stop an idea, you don't have to be against it. Simply say, I'm not sure it's the right solution. Just raise ambiguity. And we teach a lot of people about how do you fight a bad idea as well. And they always think it's got to be a no. It doesn't have to be a no. It's just I'm not sure it's the right solution over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Ambiguity by itself is a great way of slowing an idea down sometimes. Do we have the right data? Uh, in the United States, there's been studies of the tobacco industry. And what the tobacco industry sold for many years was doubt. <laughs> they never actually disagree with the academic studies on the dangers of tobacco. They simply raised doubt about whether the study was done well enough yet. And that delayed decisions about tobacco for almost 50 years um, because people said, we're not 100% sure they're right about that. So we're not making any decision to 100%. No one's going to be 100% in science. Hmm. Interesting. So from a big, from a big picture standpoint, um, Stephen, you've been working on this manifesto for change in our industry. And, and the reason we have this podcast is to talk about innovation in our industry and disruption and are we going to disrupt ourselves? Are we going to be disrupted from outside? So it's interesting, this this concept that we may be having the right ideas to disrupt our industry. We may just not know as technical people and engineers how to build political support for those ideas within our organization. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think there's also this debate that's going on between can a company really in, reinvent its own industry or are we going to wait for the entrepreneurs? And I think that's sort of this A versus B mm-hmm. kind of question. And I don't even know if our industry believes it ourselves that we can reinvent ourselves from the inside out. So you have some thoughts on maybe is it going to take an entrepreneur or or do you think people in a traditional industry can muster the courage to reinvent it from the inside out and uh and communicate it to the yeah. stakeholders and, and those kinds of issues? I think you do both. I think sometimes entrepreneurs come in and they shake things up enough that people are adept. Uh, I think, for example, the car companies were reasonably successful at the same time creating autonomous cars themselves. Mm. I think that that will happen. I know General Motors is contemplating that. Ford is contemplating that. So that's an inside thing. But it's been sparked by entrepreneurs outside. I really don't imagine Google trying to make cars. I just can't imagine. They'll make the software that goes with them, the maps but they'll probably be partner. Uh, what's a good company that's changed a lot inside in the last 10 years? It was a startup 15 years ago, but Netflix. Netflix has been at least three different companies in less than 10 years' time. I mean, when they started off, we got our DVDs delivered to us in the mail, up to three, kept them as long as you wanted to, dollar a day. Uh, created because the founder hated late fees and blockbusters. Uh, then about maybe, what, six, seven years ago, they decide not to send us DVDs, but let us what? Stream them, download them. Mm-hmm. Now think about this. They must have had 50 warehouses around North America with DVDs in them. All those warehouses are essentially gone today. Mm-hmm. Then they moved to a third thing. We make our own content as opposed to buying content from other people. So Netflix, I expect half the stuff we see in Netflix nowadays isn't produced by Netflix. So they've gone through three major changes in less than 10 years' time. So I think industries can change. Most don't. I think some industries are smart enough to make those changes, but it takes a lot of gumption, takes a lot of persuasion, and an enormous amount of risk-taking. And it's hard to change, especially when things are good. When things are bad, you force people to change sometimes. But when you're doing well as an industry, like construction is right now, why do we want to switch anything? We're making money right now. We're keeping people employed. We're doing good right now. 
Uh, it's hard to convince people. And a guy named Clayton Christensen popularized a concept called the innovation dilemma. And what his argument is, is this. Um, there's a huge risk in staying doing your same business, but there's an equally huge risk in taking innovative move and dismissing what you do now. And so either way, you're potentially screwed. Change, you can be screwed. Don't change, you can be screwed. But I'll tell you one thing. Not my idea. Something came up years ago. If you're not changing more inside your company and the environment's changing outside, you are definitely getting behind. And if you get behind too far, it's hard to catch up. That's the challenge. Progress doesn't, you know, change doesn't guarantee progress, but the absence of change guarantees no progress. And I think the only consistent yeah. in your life is progress. That's a that's a great quote. So, John, tell us how do you advocate for ideas? I'm, you know, you you have that great idea. How how do you go about building political support for a new idea within an organization? Oh, I can recommend about three hundred page book on that, but let me let me highlight a few thoughts. Okay, um, number one, answer the why now question. Why should we do it now? Most companies will wait if they can wait. If we were successful now, why change? In medicine, it's called the presenting problem. You know, if you have a knee problem, you go to your doctor. He says, why do you want to do anything about now? You've had the problem since high school. You go, well, you know, I can't dance anymore. I can't ski anymore. I can't take the stairs anymore. That gives him some insight in terms of what your issue is. So one of the critical things you got to do anytime you're pitching ideas, answer the why now. Secondly, you got to answer what we call the with it question. What's in it for them? If it's all about you and not about them, you're not going to be successful selling something. People got to see there's a win for them in this process. Without a win, if it, if it means more work for me, if it means less headcount, lower budget, why would I support it? If I'm going to see there's a lot of opportunities for me in this thing, I'm going to do it. So you've always got to entice people with a whiff it. Footnote about whiff it's they got to be a short-term whiff it rather than a long-term whiff it. No one wants to wait long-term for something. They want a short-term win. So you got to find some short-term wins. And the construction industry's done a great job of doing this in the last 20 years. You know, I've watched a lot of projects go up in my life, and they take forever, and nothing seems to happen any one day. It's astounding. Nothing happens. But one day, the project's done. And people would say it took so long. So what companies did probably, I guess you know this better than I, Stephen, probably a couple of decades ago, was starting putting cameras on cranes. And they'd shoot two or three pictures a day. And after a month, they put all those pictures together and run them really quick through PowerPoint. And you can say, we're making progress on something. Mm -hmm. It was short-term progress. This project would take another two years, but at least we made headway this month. So when you do whiff it, you've got to, first of all, make sure it's a quick whiff it. Second, it's got to be a whiff it that matters to them. The mistake a lot of us make is we try to give people things we would like. <laughs> you got to figure out what the other person likes instead. Uh, you know, if, if you like Skittles, you assume everyone likes Skittles. No, some people don't like Skittles. We make a mistake of that. So I asked my undergraduate students, or my graduate students rather, about marriage. Some of them are married. Say, how many of you put a registry up, a list of things you wanted for your wedding? Almost every raised their hand. I then say, how many of you got gifts that were not on your registry? And most raised their hand. How many of you got a gift that you indicated in the res uh, uh, registry, but it was the wrong color? You asked for blue towels, they gave you red towels. What were they thinking? <laughs> If you say you want a blue towel, you ought to be able to get a blue towel, right? But people say, well, I like red, thus I'm going to give him or her red as well. So you got to focus on what matters to the other person. Another thing about whiffets that's really important is different people in the same room will have very different whiffets. So what turns one person on in a room can turn somebody else off in a room. 
So your ability to read people's whiffets is an absolutely important skill. We've done a lot of research in the last two years on that. What does it take to successfully read somebody's whiffets? Figure out what matters to them before you walk in the room. By the way, most successful CEOs are very You sit and talk to them for five minutes, they'll say before a meeting, he'll like it, she'll disagree, but she'll go along if he likes it. He'll be negative, but he'll go along anyway as long as you use this word. They're able to read the whiffets. They can actually predict what people are going to say before the meeting. I've been fascinated by what these guys, how these guys learn this stuff. So we're doing work on that now. Uh, the final thing about whiffets is this, though. If you really want to be politically in a good sense in an organization, it is almost always better to sell door-to-door -door than in a meeting. Many people lose control of their idea in a meeting. One-on-one, -on -one they can maintain and keep selling it more effectively. So one-on-one -on -one sales takes more time, but it's more effective. And every kid knew this. You knew this when you were a child. You never talk to your parents together. You typically go to your dad because at least in the United States family, dads abdicate any responsibility for making decisions to the mother. So you go to your dad. Dad says, whatever your mother says is fine with me. Then you ran to your mother and said, mom, dad has this great idea. You understood if you talk to your parents together, you're in trouble. But talking one-on-one -on -one made it easier. Kids are very smart about this. They play mom against dad, dad against mom sometimes, simply to be able to get what they want. So Whiffets is the second thing. A third thing is you got to have the credibility, if you will, the brand name to sell your idea. You can never separate the dancer from the dance. And you may not be the right person to pitch the idea. You may not have the credibility in terms of titles or experience. You may not have the relationships. Somebody may not like you. You, don't be tr you might not be trusting. You might, might, see, might not be seen to be competent in a situation. So you got to make sure you have the credibility to pitch the idea. Even though it's maybe your idea and it's a great idea, sometimes ideas dies because people don't actually have the ability to sell it because of who they are in that situation. So those are three things to think about. Why now, with it, and credibility. That's great. I actually have a question related to the people themselves on the age range because okay. in construction and engineering construction industry, uh, especially in the Western Europe and, and North America, um, everybody's either older than 55 yeah. or younger than 35. So we've got this 20 year gap. It's kind of a demographic issue. And it seems like increasingly the under 35 crowd is getting frustrated with the over 55 crowd. The over 55 crowd doesn't move fast enough, doesn't listen to them, doesn't promote them, doesn't make them project manager right. tomorrow. Um, what would be some advice you would give to this you know, situation? I teach those young people every semester and I love them. It is the best group of people we've had come to the University of Texas in my lifetime. I say that about every generation, by the way. I just think the people coming through school today and starting off in the industry are the brightest kids, the most motivated kids, the most driven kids. They want to succeed and they want to do important stuff. Now, how they work is a little bit different sometimes. Uh, they don't necessarily see a need to be at work to get work done, for example. Uh, they do live on their phones. Uh, in fact, you know, when you think about it, I think most 55 years, 50, 55 year olds will say, it'd be great if I could work at home sometimes. I don't think they disagree with the kids in this. I think once you get used to social media, you come to like it a lot. You know, I, I mentioned to Stephen before we started this session that a couple of days ago, I left my phone at home. I'm over 55, but nonetheless, I drove home to get my phone because I had to have my phone with me. Uh, so I think it's not that the younger generation doesn't want to put up with the older generation, vice versa is they just have different ways of approaching work sometimes. And I think the goal of business is to succeed, so you figure out what it takes to be successful. Um, new technologies, CAD has changed everything in the architecture world. I'm not sure anyone, I took a course in drafting in high school. I'm not sure anyone goes back to T-squares and drafting instruments. 
I think CAD makes a huge difference. So I think you have to deal with the population you have, just like I deal with the customers you have. And by the way, your customers are going to be those 35-year-old people in 10 years' time anyway. Mm -hmm. So even if you want to keep the old-fashioned method to 55, guess what? Your customers are going to change anyway. Uh, so I think you can learn that anytime you get a new group of people, they want new things. It's, it's my life at universities. Every generation wants different things. They're still good students. They still want to learn. Um, but the technology is different. Engineering, I mean, the question is, you got to memorize formulas anymore or are there formulas available on the web? So we now teach people how to understand how the formula works rather than memorizing it mindlessly. And I know many engineers in school memorized formulas mindlessly and they had no idea about the real mechanism behind the formula. Nowadays, kids want to know the why behind the formula as opposed to simply memorizing it because they can do it themselves technically very easily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, software, for example, it's much easier to do Python than just do COBOL or Fortran because you just borrow stuff and put things, you structure things together. I think most software guys who go Fortran and COBOL will say, actually, Python is C++, probably a better model for what we need to do. So I think once somebody gets used to the new technology, you get great. And to be honest with you, I think some 55-year-olds should retire. I think some 75-year-olds should never retire. <laughs> I think it's the level of curiosity the 75-year-old person, the 55-year-old person has. I also think younger people need to have curiosity about the 55-year-old because of experience. There's some wisdom that goes with things, uh, with experience. And so working with a senior guy can tell you timing issues, for example. This may not be the right time to bring this up in a meeting. Somebody just in the company for the first few months doesn't understand timing very well. Um, you have to learn to make some things perfect, but a lot of times good enough is good enough. And experience teaches you when the good enough is good enough. Uh, we Economics call it optimizing versus satisfying. Optimizing means perfect. Satisfying means good enough. The enemy of a good solution is a hypothetical best solution you never get to. And so you never want to drive out the good in search of a best. And I think young people sometimes want to get the best and the wiser, more experienced people say on this issue, it doesn't matter that much. And that's a good piece of learning too. I think mentoring is the ultimate definition of success. I think we always make a mistake that mentors have to be old and mentees or proteges have to be young. I think some of the best mentors I've had are under 35 years old. They can teach me new methodologies I don't know. They, they, they can work a system better than I do in some cases. Uh, so I think both sides have to work at understanding each other. But the gap is really important because the 35-year-olds, the 55-year-olds going to retire in five, 10 years' time. So the younger people are going to be 45 running this industry. So if I get bottom line, I'd say figure in your 45-year-olds because they're going to be your future leaders. Um, no, I, watched, I go to one tech, actually energy company, and no one has white hair there anymore. It's really weird. I don't know what happened to them all. Most of them, even, most of them have hair and it's dark hair. How'd that happen? And the but you didn't mention gendering, but there's a massive change in the gender in this industry also, I think. There is, yeah. And that's that's good too. I mean, it's, it's, you can't fight the change, so you might as well enjoy it and make take advantage of it and learn from it over a period of time. And the multicultural diversity of engineering firms nowadays is astonishing. Uh, and everyone brings something to the table. Why? It's, we have Thanksgiving coming up in the States in a couple of days. This is November, we're talking. Uh, and I like a Thanksgiving with lots of different options for food. <laughs> I like three kinds of stuffing. I like a couple of different kinds of pies. And I'll try each one. If you look at my body, you understand the problem with that. But uh, I'd rather have three kinds of pies so I can taste each one and see which one I like rather than be stuck with one kind of pie. And I think that's what diversity in any industry does. It gives you more alternatives. Um, I mean, historically, we've had the same thing. Some people like big projects. Some people like small projects. Some like brownfield, some like greenfield projects. So you find the right person with the right situation. Everything works out great.
So I'm excited about the next generation. Yeah. It is a challenge, but I think your best people come to like that challenge and find it neat. And the ones who get cynical, you never want a cynical person in your organization. And any 55 who gets cynical about these young people should just say, it's time for me to do something else. I think young people have optimism, just engaging if you like it. And they do know more than you do. That's the neat thing, because they've been trained much more effectively. And they assume things we don't assume. Um, kids today assume technology like we assume breathing. Uh, and that's that's kind of neat when you think of it. So they know they're not design things. Look, if you don't want, look at a good example of this in construction, WeWork is the largest tenant in New York, London, and I believe San Francisco. The largest tenant. They rent more space than any other business does. And WeWork is designed for those people who want to work in a cubicle environment by themselves, start up a business. They don't have long-term leases. Everything short-term leases. Uh, they have food handy. They have pool tables, ping pong tables there. But WeWork has been extraordinarily successful at figuring out that the old-fashioned office environment is not going to work any longer. And it's astonishing how successful this company has been just adapting to that sort of thing and renting a lot of space and now designing space as well. They used to just rent space that existed and modify it. Now they're actually designing things. They have a We Live in New York above WeWork. So you can actually have a dorm room experience upstairs and go downstairs to work if you want. It's like working at Starbucks. Who knew you could work at Starbucks? But I know lots of people in the construction industry, when they need to get something done, they'll simply escape to Starbucks to get work done for a couple hours and then go back to, quote, work. So I think it's a cool generation. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm inspired to go find a young mentor. I think that's a great idea. We all need young mentors. We all need young mentors. Uh, and mentoring about technology, mentoring about what you think, and it's just, it, you know, we've always needed young mentors, but nowadays with everything changing, we need more. And I mean, I, I read an article about somebody a couple of days ago. He was a young finance guy and he goes to his boss says, I'm resigning. He writes a letter to so he says, I'm resigning. And the boss comes in, CEO comes in and says, why are you resigning? And the guy says, because we're not good at this and we're never good at this and we really suck at this and we're horrible at this. And the CEO says, why don't you come work directly for me and see if we can fix those things? That young guy becomes CEO of the company 20 years later wow. and makes an incredibly successful company. So that young person, if you take advantage of the wisdom, can actually make you more successful in the long run. Why get rid of the people, the smartest young people you have? They may not work the way you work, but the question is they get the job done. Yeah. So, John, we also have the challenge of trying to sell ideas across organizations. Right. You know, it's easy to sell an idea within one silo of the organization it's much harder across parts of the organization. And that takes a whole different set of skills. It takes the skill of understanding the incentives each unit has. So each unit has a very different set of incentive or reward system. Uh, so let's suppose I come up with a product idea. I got to get the product designers to buy into it. I got to get manufacturing to buy into it. I got to get sales to buy into it. I get marketing to buy into it. Each of them have a different thing that excites them about the idea potentially. That's why cross-functional design or development is oftentimes more effective because you address all those multiple issues up front. Uh, you know, it's like design, building a pro, doing a project, building a building, for example. It's better if your customers are involved at the beginning so you don't have to do a lot of well, change orders where you're making money. But assuming you don't want to make money on change orders, uh, it's better to have the customer involved early on in the process of designing the building because then you can build for what the customer wants. That's the whole notion of agility that's showing up now in the industry. Uh, agility is a kind of sexy word right now people are using. And it's basically we've traditionally had this waterfall model of each unit getting a step along the way. And then it's really hard to go back and change things. 
And Jody says we're constantly iterating back and forth as we do the project. So, you know, if, if I start write a piece of software, it's going to take two years to write it. By the time it gets done, you're probably not going to need it. But if I keep the customer involved throughout the entire process and every unit involved in, involved in the process, then it's more likely to be a functional piece of software at the end. I suspect, and I'm not an expert in construction in any way, matter or form, but there have been projects finished that no one wants when they get done. It just doesn't work for them any longer. The marketplace has changed so much. So having people involved all the way along the line makes much better sense, I think. And that takes um, appreciation, if you will, of what each cons the concern of each unit has. So you can't dismiss salespeople because they say, how are we going to sell this? You can't dismiss manufacturing because they got to figure out how to do it in the first place. You can't dismiss distribution because they understand the issues of tariffs and those sorts of things and just who's going to make it. So you got to include all these people from the get-go if you're successful. The uh, challenge in construction becomes maybe even more difficult because you have so many different companies. Yeah. Um, so we, we've studied this extensively. We figured out that the working relationships amongst firms is the most important factor in determining the success of a project. Uh, we've also figured out that, you know, if you have a $400 million project, there are about 400 organizations that are part of it. It's, it basically breaks down to one company per million dollars. That's astonishing. Um, and, so, and so this term of interface management comes up yeah. that companies are really struggling with this. They try partnering. They try team building. Uh, the, the, the things that engineers would say, you know, softer skills, they, we don't pay attention to that. Those come to the forefront. Um, what would be... You know, and of course, if you get to a, a billion dollar project, now there's a thousand companies, right? <laughs> and so what would be maybe some strategies or ways about thinking about how do you work with, if there's 400 or a thousand or even more companies involved, how do you get them all oriented in the right direction? My first thought, I'm not an engineer, but modularization. Uh, I think of Zachary, a construction company in San Antonio, built back in the 1960s a high-rise hotel in fewer days than any other hotel in the history of Florida did. Those days, the Hilton, I believe, in the San, yeah, Antonio. San Antonio on the Riverwalk. And what they did is they modularized everything. It was a quick deadline and they made these, every room was a module and they made all the stuff ahead of time and they put them together by basically like Legos, they put it together. Uh, so I'm not, I don't, modularization just struck me when you start thinking about that. If you can give specifications, get modularized, you put them together. It's like pipes fitting together in the end. Right. Uh, you make sure to put everything in you can ahead of time. Um, and that's not, it actually has an old fashioned idea. If you remember, Thomas Edison actually was a construction business for a while. Thomas Edison came up with this idea of concrete homes that he could build the whole mold and build the whole house in a mold, basically. Hmm. And back in 1910, 1915, for poor people, we wanted to build these commodulized homes. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't work out for a number of different reasons. But you know, one thought remodulization. I think another thing is. People respond to consequences when everyone shares the reward for working together. It makes more sense. If somebody's getting rich and the other people are just contracting or payroll stuff, it's not going to get as motivated as well. I think I, I, my, my long-term goal when I, before I retire is to do a book on the history of the politics of standards. Everything gets standardized at some point, and I have this abiding interest in the standardization. It's kind of a professor kind of abiding sense. But, you know, everything gets standardized at one point. And one thing that overcomes some of those hassles is standardization. When you have standard metrics, for example, you have standards so it can easily Lego-like fit together. Uh, in the research, we call it mass customization sometimes. I think the communication becomes absolutely critical, Stephen, also. I think over-communicating is one of the most important skills. 
when you think you've told somebody something, tell them again in a different way. <laughs> and make sure you they understand what you're talking about. And be willing to check on things too. The right mixture and concrete needs to be checked before you lay any concrete down. Put the wrong mixture down, it's going to be really expensive to take it back. So how you communicate what we need, how we communicate what we have, and make sure they're aligned seems to be, be a critical, it's communication in the end. And that's why I'm a professor of communication kind of thing. Because I think in the end, everything revolves on good communication. But it's things. not just putting it all in an email either. No, it's not. Email is a lousy way of communicating. Face-to-face uh, -face works better, but we can't always do that. The real trick is use multiple media. The more media you use, the better the communication is going to be. So Stephen was nice enough to walk over to my office to talk. We could have done this by phone to each other, but being face-to-face -face makes it easier. Um, there is it, more media, greater fidelity is what the research tells us. Abe Lincoln, for example, before his president was a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, had a one-room office he shared with a guy named William Herndon. After he became president, Herndon wrote a book about him. He said Lincoln drove him crazy in this one-room office because anytime he read anything, he read it aloud. And Herndon says, can't you read quietly? Lincoln said, yeah, I can read quietly, but I remember it better when I hear it and I see it. Two media being more effective than one media. Steve and I both have kids in high school right now. Flashcards are a great invention. It isn't, the, the trick is writing the flashcard. That's the secret. It's not studying on the flashcards, making the flashcard in the first place. Mm -hmm. And especially true tactically. The research says in colleges, don't take notes by computer, take notes by hand. You remember it better. Because hand is tactile, computer is not tactile. Mm -hmm. So the more media you use, if you use hearing, seeing, touching, well, you know what I'm talking about. Anytime my, my brother lives in the world you guys live in, uh, site tours. People finally get what you're talking about when you take them on a tour. Uh, I was working with Shell a couple years ago. I got on top of a platform. I never understood what a platform was like until I'd actually been on one. Something called Perdido that was not, now mm -hmm. not functioning in, in, in Gulf. But I got to see it being constructed. And walking on it what was my first thing to do, try to touch things. So what my tour guide said, don't put your hands on anything. <laughs> But we naturally want more stuff. We want more media. So anytime you're communicating something is important, put in writing, but follow up with a question or an email. If you email, follow up with a conversation. If you have a conversation, follow up with an email. So you make sure people understand better. So with children, you can send them a text, but sometimes it's useful to call them at the same time. Get your attention. It's really important. I won't call you most of the time, but it's important I'll call you as well as text you. All right? Find my friend is a great thing for parents sometimes because you can visually see what they're doing as well as talk to them on the phone. Um, I teenage issues. Usually, when I when I call my daughter, I get a text back from her dad. Just send me a text, yeah. will you? No, I, I call. I, I text my daughter one time. So I need to talk to you about something. She says, "What?" <laughs> That's supposed to text. <laughs> but I think the more media you use, the more effective it is. And we we live in the best time of the world in terms of media. We have more media available now to overcome these problems than we ever had before. John, I, I could literally talk to you for hours on this topic, but I have one last question. I know Stephen probably has one as well. So um, I was doing a podcast recently with Peter Senge, the author of Fifth Discipline, and he was talking about the term, the concept of mastery, you know, how you master something. And I think that's the other thing in our industry. We ask people to collaborate, but we don't give them a way to practice and develop that skill. And you've used the word skill many times in this conversation. So how do you develop a skill around advocating and selling your ideas? How do you practice? I think you practice a couple ways. One, you study on it. You spend time reading about it. 
Uh, reading gives you a schema to understand what's going on. It gives you a way to frame things. Then I think what you do is you watch what people are doing. So I'm interested in how people take over meetings when they know nothing about the topic. That's actually an important leadership skill because you can't be an expert at everything. So I'll talk about that to a group. And then what we'll do is say, now go watch meetings. And they watch meetings completely differently because they've heard that stuff. It's kind of like if you ever played a sport seriously, you're a much better observer what actually goes on in the field or the court than if you never played that sport. Uh, so you see things otherwise once you learn. Then I would tell you to practice things. Stop practicing persuading people. Um, one of my key principles of life is the biggest mistake most, most of us make is we negotiate with ourselves. We're afraid to make the ask. We know we can't get somebody, so don't ask. So I tell my MBA students, and it drives them crazy the first few weeks, but they love it afterwards. Say once a week, ask for something you know you cannot get. Next time you're a restaurant, ask for something on the menu. They can probably do it. Next time you're a hotel, ask for a better room. Next time you're at the airport, ask for a better seat. What's the worst they're going to say? No. But once you start doing that enough, you start getting better and better over a period. It's like in any sport, any game. You play cards, you get better. Driving, you get better with experience. But it has to be educated experience. That's why I say study up first, then start observing. And then start practicing a few of those things yourself. Just pick two or three things out to practice. Work at those three things. If they work good, otherwise don't. The other thing I tell people to do build mastery is I say keep a blog or, or notebook about your own behavior. So I was working with somebody just a couple of days ago, and she says, I need to be better at this stuff. What books should I read? I recommend a few books, but then I said, I want you to write your own book. Get one of those old high school composition books. And each day, spend 20 minutes writing about something you saw in a meeting, something you saw at office, something you saw on TV about persuasion that impressed you. Like, I was amazed by how she got away with asking this question, and he didn't. What was the difference? It's astounding how he walks in the room and no one pays attention. She walks in the room and people pay attention. So do your own analyses. Do your own kind of write your own book over a period of time. Just write down one observation a day. Over a period of time, maybe six months in, go through and read all those things. You'll discover the learning lessons you made. Because a lot of them, once you see, you say, how does that work? How is he so successful doing that? And we start analyzing it. You get in depth about yourself. So read, observe, and most importantly, study yourself and practice other things, but then study what other people are doing in that process too. Systematically study, as opposed to just looking. So I could look at a building and say it's a beautiful building. You show me the bones of the building, walk me through the building, I understand much better what's going on. And then if I ask myself a question like, how does that actually work? And I start writing about how I think it works, I probably come to understand it. Uh, we have this research that says, you know, people talk aloud, they think they're saying important stuff. You ask them put in a writing, they oftentimes figure they don't actually know much. <laughs> so putting in writing is a very useful way of forcing yourself to get some logic and frame your things at the same time. So write a dear blog letter every day to yourself. One thing I noticed, one thing I did, it could be yourself or what you notice in other people, and use that as a way of kind of training yourself to think this way more. Great. Steven. So, yeah, my final question as you were talking uh, about these different things and, and how do you get to mastery? There's this related thing called enrollment and how do you enroll others? And you may have a great idea yeah. and, and we've talked a little bit about this already, yeah. but are there some pretty simple steps to, to get mastery about enrollment? Yeah. Uh, engagement. How do you get people engaged in your idea? Right. Uh, there are a number of things you can do. Mostly let's just talk about one thing today. You engage people when you meet their needs and desires. 
we spend a lot of time studying human needs. And in psychology, they suggest the three or four core needs everyone has socially. What does it need to, what need to be included? I feel a need to be included. If I've been included, it becomes our idea, not my idea or your idea. So people like the sense I'm part of the idea. It's not his idea, it's our idea. So the more you include people in the process, the more engaged they become. Secondly, people want to be liked, a need for affection. So I'll engage or enroll with people I like and who like me. Uh, affinity is incredibly important. I know people have this incredible capacity to really upset people right before they need their help. That's kind of dumb. More easily to get people to buy in and engage if they like you. So being a likable person does actually matter. Uh, not an ingratiating person, but a likable person. Most, most execs I work with, they may not really be likable, but they can sure fake it well. Thirdly, a sense of control. People get engaged when they feel some control over something. So if you have no control, you interpret everything as a control issue. You're forcing me to do this, you're making me do this. When you have a little bit more control, you don't interpret things like that. So give people control on the local site about some things. Not everything, but some things. The paint color doesn't necessarily matter everywhere, okay? How you do this, what you do in the morning or afternoon, let them have control over it. So it becomes their project in terms of ownership as well. Fourth need is a need we underestimate, but it's really important, a need for efficacy. We got to believe what we're doing really matters. There's real consequence. And we get engaged when we think we're going to do something that really matters. The metaphor you use for these things, Stephen, is volunteer work. I think most companies should manage their employees as volunteers. Because all of us know people who do a lot of volunteer work and they don't get paid for it. I know people have a hard time getting to work by nine o'clock in the morning. The soccer field, a little league field at seven on Saturdays. I know people cannot stay for a meeting at four because of church work at six. Nothing against church or soccer, Lily, but how sad it is that you're spending all your working life just so you can afford to do things that engage you outside of your job. So I think what companies need to do is spend a lot more time studying what it is that volunteer organizations do to engage people, to get them to show up on a Saturday when it's raining to build a structure like Habitat does, mm -hmm. to get people to drive food from a restaurant to a storage area to feed the hungry on their own mileage, on their own gas at night when they want to be doing something else. Uh, what makes somebody drive meals to older people in the community on Saturdays rather than going shopping on Saturdays. So I think if you think about how volunteer organizations engage people, it's probably the prescription for what you want to get people engaged in an idea too. Uh, so that would be my, that's my theoretical answer. Practically the ways of doing all those things, okay? Uh, inclusion, just use, watch your pronouns. Pronouns matter. Is it my idea or our idea? Are we going to do it? Or my, is, is my team doing it or our team going to do it? It's small things like that. Uh, control, delegate some responsibilities where they make their own decisions. Affection, be nice to people. Uh, know what's important to them. Ask about their families. Thank them. Not only when they get things done, but spontaneously thank them. Even when it's not tied directly to a project. Make people feel appreciated. And if, God, the efficacy is so important, show them what's going to happen with this building afterwards, this project afterwards. We build this highway. We're not soon putting a lot of concrete down. We're getting people to where they need to go to their jobs so they maybe get to the doctor faster. Uh, we're creating community many times in construction. And that's a so what. And nice thing about your industry is what you do stays around for a long time in most cases. I've always liked the fact that Winston Churchill's hobby was laying bricks. And somebody said, why bricks? That's time for painting. And he says, because one, there's no one. You just do it, okay? Number two, it's not going to go away very quickly. And number three, you can immediately judge how well you've done. 
Mm-hmm. So legacy is important. There's no industry, I think, that has better legacy efficacy than your industry does. So people say, I built that building 26 years ago. That highway, I can tell you the problems with it to this day. Uh, it engages people in this. And you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time, thanks to CI, working construction people, and they will talk about projects 15 years ago that still define them in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful thing. It's kind of like, it's like homes. If you've been your own general contractor, you own that home for the rest of your life, even if you left 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. track house, you'll be there three years, you don't own it. It's just someplace like an advanced hotel room. Mm-hmm. So I would engage people by focusing on those four needs. That's great. It's great advice. Yeah. And uh, go ahead, Gretchen. So I was just going to say the same thing, Stephen. That's great advice. John, thank you so much for joining us today on The Built Revolution. Um, so many great ideas around how to advocate, how to build support politically for your ideas, how to innovate um, in our industry, how to communicate. And so grateful to you for the time. And thank you, Stephen, as well. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Hope we have a chance to do this again sometime. And John, let me just add my thanks as well. Uh, I think this is a perspective that's definitely needed. It's something that we don't focus enough on. And so your thoughts today are extremely helpful in that regard. So thank you. I love your industry. I think industry is great. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.